open your Bibles with me. We're going to be bouncing all over the place, but uh, we will uh, keep our fingers in Ephesians 6, 17, and 18. Uh, that is where we left off last week. We'll get there towards the middle of this sermon, and then we're actually going to jump all the way to the book of Revelation after that. So put on your seatbelts, all right? That's all I'm saying. Have you adopted a wartime mentality yet? When a nation is in a life-and-death struggle, it only makes sense for the country to devote its whole energy to the effort. Not some of it, not some of its people, but all of its resources, all of its people marshaled toward this one cause. You come to realize that the need for sacrifice and effort affects every person in the country. You can't have some people living like it's peacetime while everybody else is at war. Now in this series, we've looked at the reality that the church is in the grip of all-out spiritual warfare. It's undeniable. It's all over the Scriptures. And if you start looking at your life and really looking at what's happening in your life, you come to realize that you're involved in this spiritual warfare. Yet, despite these realities, too many Christians and churches function more in a mentality suitable to peacetime. Well, how so? Well, in peacetime, we ask ourselves, what's wrong with enjoying myself and accumulating my own goods and possessions? It's very easy to, to fall into that mode of thinking, particularly in a culture like ours. But when you're in a wartime mentality, you think to yourself, I can't waste anything. Everything that I have, every possession that I have, every opportunity that I have, must be leveraged for God's great cause in this world. In, in peacetime, we think it's reasonable to avoid suffering and hardship. In fact, I want to submit to you that at peacetime, we go at great lengths in order to avoid suffering and hardship. But wartime's totally different. In wartime, you know that you're throwing yourselves into harm's way sake of the cause. In peacetime, I have my goals, my plans, my agenda. But warriors think differently. Warriors come under a unified strategy. They know that they must comply with orders. Yes, individual initiative is important, but soldiers work together for the overall strategic plan, which comes along with strategic goals. There's no place for individualism when you have a wartime mentality. And let me just say this, there are no time outs. You can imagine yourself being involved in one of those battles like you saw in Braveheart or Saving Private Ryan, and the conflict gets really intense and you hold up your hand like a T and you say, time out, time out. My shoe's untied. And everyone just put down their guns for a minute while I attend to this, and then I'm going to get back involved in this conflict. No, the other side would not stop what they're doing. If anything, they're going to intensify what they're doing. 
I want to suggest that some believers feel sanguine about the spiritual battle. It's almost as if they believe that if I just kind of block it out and pretend like it doesn't exist, it'll be okay. Now, that isn't to say that we're not on the winning side. We're, we're on the winning side. In fact, as you look at Scripture, Scripture tells us that God is progressively defeating Satan. In my studies this week, I was looking at the seven stages of Satan's defeat, and I wanted to pass these along to you because this is encouraging. The first stage was the incarnation of the Son of God in human flesh. In Revelation 12, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. We saw that Satan had made every effort to destroy Jesus. And in fact, in verse 4, the text says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour her. And if you go over to the Gospel of Matthew in the Christmas story, you see that King Herod the Great did just that under the influence of Satan. He tried to wipe out all of the male children under two, but God gave Joseph a revelation which corresponds with Revelation 12, 5, and 6. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness. Joseph and Mary take Jesus down to Egypt. In fact, every time we celebrate Christmas, this Christmas season, when we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating the first stage of Satan's defeat. Stage two happened when Jesus resisted Satan's temptation in the wilderness. Stage three, the third stage, is when Jesus cast out demons. You might recall the story of the demoniac in Luke chapter 8. And the demoniac says to Jesus, what do I have to do with you, Son of God? And then Jesus asks him in his name, and he says, we are legion, for we are many. And then he asks Jesus not to cast them into that outer abyss, because you know why he said that? Because Jesus has all authority and power to do that. He demonstrated in that moment that he could defeat these demonic forces, Stage four, the cross. Colossians 2.15, God disarmed the rulers and authorities. Again, those are evil spiritual forces, and he put them to open shame. Six, it's when we, by God's strength, put on the spiritual armor and we stand firm against Satan's assault. In the seventh, or the fifth, stage, excuse me, I skipped one there, is when God brings men and women to saving faith. And the seventh, the final stage, is when God casts out Satan and his demons in the lake of fire forever and ever. So yes, Satan is a defeated enemy, but his defeat is progressive. And this means that we need to take him seriously as believers, it makes me think of the analogy of World War II. On June 6, 1944, more than 160,000 Allied forces stormed the beach of Normandy, France, and, and they claimed that ground. And it was at that moment, that decisive moment, that, that day that we call D-Day, which the D stands for day, that the, the Allied forces knew that Hitler was a defeated foe. 
The Russian juggernaut is coming from the east. The allies are coming from the west and from the south. He is going to be pinned in in the middle. But here's the experience of the regular, everyday, ordinary soldier. They didn't feel like the battle was over. They knew that there was still going to be bitter battles that would be before them. And even after D-Day, soldiers were still going to lose their lives. See, in the scriptures, according to Colossians 2.15, the cross was D-Day for Satan. When Jesus laid down his life, he showed, demonstrated that Satan was a defeated foe, but now he's like a fatally wounded lion who can still lash out, and he can kill if you're not careful. So discerning Christians know that it's too early to live like it's peacetime. The enemy still has much ground that is under his control, and it's our task to reclaim that ground. Now, how do we do this? I want to take a look at the Christian's weapons. We have two great weapons according to Ephesians 6, 17, and 18. Now, last week we looked at the defensive components of the armor. And you might recognize as you're looking at the spiritual armor of God that most of the armament that we're given as believers is defensive in nature. Much of what we do is standing firm. But we're also given weapons so that we might advance the cause of the gospel too. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Now, as you look at this passage, I want you to notice something about the flow. There's not a period between verse 17 and verse 18. Look at what Paul says, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying. Did you get that? Take it praying. So these two weapons go hand in hand together. Now the sword of the Spirit is, of course, explained to us the Word of God. It is the Word of God. It's the last piece of our armor, the first offensive piece of armor. It was the short sword that the Roman soldier would carry. It was called the Makara. And as the soldier advanced, he would skillfully use this short sword against his enemies. In fact, a well-armed Roman soldier was very dangerous with his short sword. I remember reading of a battle in history It was 10,000 Roman soldiers versus 100,000 Britannians. And the 10,000 conquered the 100,000 because they were so adept at handling their weapon. And I want to tell you this this morning, Christian. The more you're trained with the Word of God, the more dangerous you are to the enemy. You have to understand why that is. Why is this Word so powerful What did Paul say in 2 Timothy 3.16 of it? He said, all Scripture is God-breathed. 
I mean, think about that for just a moment. Think about your theology. What does the Bible say about creation? How did creation come about? It came about by means of the Word of God. It was God-breathed. So the same power that God used to create is the same power that is living and active in His Word. Hebrews 4.12 says the same, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But I want you to understand this about the Word. Is not some resource that we use, some magic book, some mystical incantation that we just say and then Satan runs away. Okay, just simply saying words of Scripture doesn't have that kind of power. That's not what the Bible's talking about. That is more mystical than it is biblical. Remember the temptation in the wilderness? Satan quoted Scripture. He knows the Bible better than you do. But as we look at Hebrews 4.12, we come to understand that the Word is living and active primarily because it's living and active in us. It shapes our hearts and our minds, and as we sharpen ourselves by knowing the Bible, we will be far less likely to fall susceptible to one of his temptations. We will be like Jesus in the wilderness who said, that's not what Scripture says says. And if Satan is the father of lies, then knowing the truth takes all of his power of temptation and deception and discouragement because we're calling his lies out. Now let's look at prayer, a wartime weapon too. Again, Paul says in Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Again, remember, sword in hand and praying. The two go together. John Piper, who I like to just affectionately call Pipe Daddy, um, in his book on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad, said this, prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. So until you recognize that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Piper says that we have to start viewing prayer more like this. It is as though the field commander... Jesus called in the troops, gave them a crucial mission, go and make disciples of all the nations, and he handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters, and then said, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished, and to that end, he has authorized me to give each one of you personal access to him through these transmitters. And if you stay true to this mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitter to give tactical advice to send air cover when you need it. But what do we do with these wartime walkie-talkies? Well, Piper says, 
we try to rig it up as an intercom in our houses, in cabins, in boats, in cars, not to call in firepower for a conflict against this mortal enemy, but to ask for more comforts in the den. Now, that's not to say that prayer isn't personal. Prayer is incredibly personal. I mean, the fact that the God of the universe extended a transmitter to each one of us so that we might make personal contact in our time of need daily, stay sustained by prayer with him. I mean, that's just incredible when you think about it. In fact, I want you to see that through prayer, God meets our deepest needs. Four of them, in fact. We, we see through prayer that God meets your need to be known. Some of you struggle in your marriage. You struggle in your marriage for this reason. You wish that your spouse would be more intentional to know you, to listen to you, to be approachable. Now, here's the truth. Every spouse is going to fall short in some fashion. They are. For someone to be approachable in the way that we would like, I mean, they would have to be omniscient, omnipotent, available to us 24-7, 365. And it turns out that only God can meet that need in your life. Don't look for your spouse to be God. Approach Him in prayer. Through prayer, God also meets your need to be accepted. In my marriage counseling courses, we, we talk about this word intimacy in one of the final sessions that we meet. And, and that word is such an important word. It's not primarily talking about just the physical intimacy that a husband and a wife share. Now, that's a beautiful part of marriage. But intimacy runs much deeper than just physical intimacy. In fact, intimacy is being fully known by someone with no fear of being rejected. And everyone needs that. We all need that. I'm looking at men for a minute. Men, you need that. You do. Many men feel lonely. We live in a culture of a lot of loneliness because we've developed this hard exterior in pride that says, I can't let people know the real me. That never works well. Remember, pride makes you stupid. But God... As you come to him in prayer, he already knows everything about you. Do you think you're going to fool him, good, bad, ugly, everything about him? And he says, come, I know you, and I accept you in Jesus. Through prayer, God protects you. Through wartime prayer, God strengthens us to stand, and in this way, we deliver regular little defeats to Satan. I mean, can you imagine how much it boils Satan's blood when you stand firm against him? He looks at you the same way that we look at a chimpanzee or something like that. He's smarter than you. He's stronger than you. He knows how easily manipulated you are and how easily he can entrap you. Yet, when you pray... Through the Holy Spirit, 
you're regularly delivering little defeats to him. It's incredible. Through prayer, too, God gives you significance. Prayer is as much about advancement as it is about protection. It's that space where you and I ask God to bring about eternally significant outcomes. Remember what Paul says at the end of Ephesians 6, 19 and 20? Pray also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Church, pray significant prayers. If we pray in this sort of way, God is going to advance the cause of the gospel here on Cape Cod, in New England, and to the ends of the earth. That's why one of our every member commitments is Pray 365. And that's not about just a personal prayer time, but that's praying that God would leverage the local church for his mission. Let's take a look now and bring this all to conclusion. We're going to look at how we know that Satan is defeated. Now again, I said this morning, we've got to put our seatbelts on because we are covering a lot of ground. And as you look at the defeat of Satan, you primarily are looking into the book of Revelation. And what I'm about to share with you is an entire sermon series all wrapped up in a sermon point, okay? So we're going to go jet speed through this And I'm going to give you a timeline of the end times and how we see Satan defeated prophetically in the scriptures. It begins in the end times with the tribulation period. It's that seven-year period where everything is coming to a conclusion. Now, the scriptures tell us that in the coming days, Satan will lead the nations of the world to form a one-world government. And during this time, Revelation 12 again says that Satan will gather his spiritual forces and he's going to assault heaven. (laughs) Only it's a non-contest. If you look at verse 9, it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He has thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, even though he is cast out of heaven in the middle of the tribulation, it doesn't prevent him from establishing his goal of creating a global network. He raises up this Antichrist and, through the Antichrist, builds a worldwide empire. This empire may look strong on the outside, but it is shaky. There is certainly pushback. One form of pushback that this empire receives is the saints of God. Now, these saints are what I would call tribulation saints. I I believe that the church is raptured at the beginning of the tribulation. So these saints are individuals who have come to faith in the tribulation, and they stand against the Antichrist. But also, I mean, look at our world today. Is there any, like, worldwide leader that is not motivated by self-interest? So do you think that pooling all these nations together is going to just be this peaceful utopia where everyone just toes the line of the Antichrist? Of course not. There's infighting. There's a lot of things taking place. And and one of the greatest sources of frustration for this Antichrist is going to be the nation of Israel. And it's here that he's going to coalesce his forces 
for one final battle. And we move into the second part of this timeline, which is Armageddon. Now, this will prove to be Satan's undoing. You see, the conflict is going to be the worst conflict in human history. A lot of people look at Armageddon and think of it as a, uh, a final battle. But really, it's, it's not just a singular battle. It's, it's a military campaign that takes place during this time. And though it begins in the Valley of Megiddo, it soon spills out into Israel in the Middle East. Jesus said of it, Matthew 24, 21, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and will never be. And when all seems lost for God's people, Christ will return at just the right time. He always comes at just the right time. I want you to understand that. Always. As you look at the life and legacy of Jesus, you see that he was born at just the right time. He did his ministry in Galilee at just the right time, died on the cross at just the right time, rose again from the dead at just the right time, ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father at just the right time, rose again at just the right time. And Zechariah 14, verses 3 and 4, tells us that Jesus touches down in the middle, in midst of this inhumanity of war, and it says, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. And geologists today actually suggest that there is a fault line that runs from the Mount of Olives all the way down to the Dead Sea. So, of course, this is going to be fulfilled. Now, after this, the battle focuses or changes focus. It was focused upon Jerusalem, but now all of these forces, they turn towards Christ and they try to topple him. And John tells us more about this in the book of Revelation, verses 14 and 16. It says, And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you ever just sit there and think to yourself that Jesus was just a meek and mild teacher? He got it all wrong. He's so much more than that, according to the Scriptures. And as we jump to verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. It was over before it began. And with it, the false prophet who was in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those whom he had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Now catch your breath for a minute and look at verse 14 again. 
Now, who are those that are accompanying Jesus, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure? As you look at the scriptures, it's not the angels. It's a group of believers who had shared in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look at verses 7 through 9, and you'll see that. So as I understand the Bible, the believers who are presently living, who have been raptured or either have died in Christ, they're the ones who go with Christ into battle. Do you get that? You and I are going to go into battle with Christ at the battle of Armageddon. Armageddon. I think that's incredible. So then we move into the next part of the timeline. After the great events of Christ's return, Satan is bound in chains for a thousand years. You see that in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. It is in this time that Christ rules for a thousand years as the rightful king of the earth. And after a thousand years, Satan is set free for a thousand, or final stand. Now this tells you a little something about human nature. Because think of it, a thousand years, believers have, or people have been living under the kindly rule of Christ. And there's going to be some people that come through the tribulation and live in the millennial kingdom who are not glorified. They still have a sin nature. And the text tells us that Satan, after being released, is actually able to go around and whip up people all over the world, and they follow him yet again. Look at Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire will come down from heaven and consume them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that is the conclusion of the final battle. Let me ask you a question as you're digesting all of this. Why does God defeat Satan through a progressive series of battles? I mean, why not just simply say, Satan, you're done, (laughs) and just move on? I want to suggest to you that there is something that consumes God, and it's his glory, and he cares about his glory, and he wants his glory to be made manifest and seen and savored and adored. And I come to find out as I look at the scriptures that Christ and God receive the most glory by defeating Satan progressively, showing through multiple stages that Satan's schemes are faulty. They're foolhardy. So one after another, God just breaks down the dominoes that Satan has tried to set up. And then in eternity, we're all going to say what Paul said in Romans eleven thirty six: For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now ask yourself this question too. Why do I need to know that Satan is defeated? Why do I need a record like Revelation to tell me that the enemy is ultimately going to be defeated. I remember 
Several years ago, I was watching the Super Bowl at a friend's house, and uh, the Patriots were playing. They were putting up a good uh, game, but they were down, it was the last seven minutes of the game, down 14 points or so. I don't even remember who they were playing at the time. I just, that's how little interest I have in sports. But as the game was progressing, and we're in these final seven minutes, I just started yawning. It was past my bedtime. It was like 7.30 or something like that. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go home. I know what you're thinking. Oh, you of little faith. <laughs> so I make the 30-minute drive to get to my house. I text my friend, and I say, ah, it's too bad that the game had to end the way that it did. And he texts back, and he says, you missed the most amazing seven minutes of a football game. What were you thinking? They won the Super Bowl. Now just imagine with me for a moment that someone had prophetic gifts. And they declared in the middle of the game, oh, don't worry, it looks like they're going to lose, but in the end, in the final seven minutes, they're going to win the game. How do you think I would have responded if I knew that they were going to win the game? Honestly, I probably still would have left because I like my bedtime. <laughs> I wouldn't have left. Come on. I would have watched the game, right? Because, because knowing what is going to happen changes everything about what we experience in the present. Imagine being on the scene of that final battle and watching Armageddon play out and you don't know anything about the prophetic nature of scriptures, you would be thinking, it's a done deal. We're going to lose. But we don't need to think that way. We don't need to watch it play out because Christ's return is a certainty. It's told to us through the prophetic calendar of the Bible. He will defeat Satan, and he will defeat all who follow Satan. So what does that mean for you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Well, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it means that you need to stay focused and aligned with Christ through all of your life. It's so easy to get discouraged, to get off track, to start thinking, what is this all about anyway, this whole Christian thing? It doesn't seem like I'm on the winning team. Well, if you look at the prophecy of the Scripture, you know you're on the winning team. Stay true to the cause. What does it mean to you if you're sitting here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ? You need to be changing teams. <laughs> You need to get over on Christ's side because according to the Scriptures, Christ will return. Christ is victorious. And the Bible says that the reward of following Jesus is eternal life. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to be on the winning side? Who doesn't want a life full of significance? So your response this morning is to put your faith in Him to trust him, and to let him lead your life. Would you bow your heads with me? And just for this moment, I want to ask all of you to give God your attention. Give him your attention. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, it's the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. 
And you can do that right now. I want to lead you in a prayer if you've never placed your faith in Christ. Just where you're sitting, right there in the quietness of your heart, repeat this prayer after me. And, And if you choose to pray this this morning, grab one of those Connect cards afterwards. Let me know that you've put your faith in Christ, and I'd love to just follow up with you and and hear more about it. So pray these words with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior and the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment as best as I know how. I turn my life over to your care in your control. Amen. Amen. May this week you experience God's love. May you grow to look more like Jesus. And may you be empowered by the Spirit. God bless you.